Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Bible passage that we're reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 to 25. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Then, sorry, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Therefore, repent therefore of this, your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, 
preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. All right, so um, we're in the book of Acts again. Uh, thanks, Dutch, for, for reading uh, that passage uh, for us. Um, what a journey it's been, hey, over the last uh, however many weeks it's been. I'm not sure exactly off the top of my head. Um, but we've been utilizing this theme, right, to, to the ends of the earth. And I've just been blown away hearing each week just this, this story unfold, the works of, of the Spirit uh, unfold and the church just developing and growing, seeing the challenges that they meet along the way and how God works uh, through, uh, through the church and helps them sort of nut that out. Um, so yeah, we're in Acts 8 today, but before we get there, last week, uh, Mick took us through the story and account of Stephen's, firstly, his amazing uh, sermon, essentially, and address, um, and then his martyrdom. Mick challenged us uh, and encouraged us from this passage with four things, life in the spirit, scripture in the heart, trusting in Jesus, and having grace in everything. Um, it's a big chunk, so well done, Mick, uh, for, for getting through that. Stephen's martyrdom, right, it, it marked the start of a severe persecution for the church. Jesus was, was killed in the hopes that this movement would just die out along with Jesus. The religious leaders opposed the followers of Jesus as they continued to spread the gospel. And this wasn't working, so what did they do? They started to detain people, detain some of the followers, question them, challenge them as they started to speak. Then in chapter 7, as I just said, Stephen was, uh, was killed. Right? They went back to, oh, we killed Jesus. That didn't quite work. That didn't die out. So maybe we'll just we'll take another one out and see if that does it. But this week, I think we see another turning point in the terms of persecution of the church. And that's what I've titled uh, today's sermon is The Turning Point. And it's not just for the persecution of the church, but also for the spread of the gospel, the people of Samaria, their lives, and the lives of a couple individuals like Philip and Simon. We're going to break it up uh, today. Verses 1 through uh, 4 is going to be the persecution that leads to proclamation. What happens when this persecution of the church intensifies? Verses 5 through 8 is going to be proclamation that leads to joy. What is the result of being faithful to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? And verses 9 through 25 is power to believe. We will see in, in that final section, in the biggest chunk, a contrast in claimed power, right? One having a power to deceive and another having a power to save. So what impact does that power have in this section? We're going to nut through that and it's going to be a fun one. So let's pray um, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, just come before you now. Thank you for the opportunity to just study your word. Uh, Lord, we, we live in this country without the, the fear of, of people like Saul bursting through the door um, and, and locking us up. Uh, God, we have such a privilege and such a freedom with your word. God, I pray that you would be honoured with my words. Lord, I pray that your people would be served uh, and we would go away from here changed. So go before us now, Lord, um, and may we, you be honoured. Amen. So every November, communities around the world 
hold remembrance on the anniversary of the Nazis' brutal assault on the Jews during Kristallnacht. It's also known as the Night of Broken Glass, because in the hours between November 9th and 10th, 1938, Adolf Hitler and his propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, decided to unleash violence against Jews across Germany and the annexed territory of Austria with the aim of driving them out of the Third Reich. One account states of a fireman, the alarm went off between 5 and 5.30 a.m. And as usual, I jumped on my bicycle towards the firehouse. I had a strange feeling when I got there and saw many people standing in front of it. I was not, to let, I was not allowed to go into the firehouse to take the engines out or even to open the doors. One of my friends who lived in the next synagogue whispered to me, be quiet, the synagogue is burning. I was beaten up already when I wanted to put out the fire. Eventually, we were allowed to take the fire engines out, but only very slowly. We were ordered not to use any water till the whole synagogue was burned down. Many of us did not like to do that, but we had to be careful not to voice our opinions because the enemy is listening. Only after one of the party members was worried that his house was going to catch fire were we allowed to use water. But, ooh, bit of a crackle. But even then, we just had to stand and watch until the house of prayers was reduced to rubble and ashes. In the meantime, the marshals rounded up the Jews and dragged them in front of the synagogue, where they had to kneel down and put their hands above their heads. I saw with my own eyes how one old Jew was dragged down and pushed to his knees. Then the arsonists came in their brown uniforms to admire the results of their destruction. Last week we saw Saul watch the coats of the men that were stoning Stephen, symbolising that he backed that stoning. He was all about that. Saul is not just a, a bystander, he was, a, he was passionate about stopping the Jesus movement. The, the Greek word used for approve there in verse 1, indicates an active approval, not just a passive consent, right? It's an active approval. Saul was hard against the church, but we're going to see that God was using that. How so? You remember Acts 1.8? Going back quite a few weeks. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Keep this verse in your mind. That's our theme. So take note of the phrase as well, on that day. Now, we know that there had been some persecution already taking place, right? But Stephen's martyrdom, again, marks a significant point of persecution for the church. The level of commitment to opposing the church by these religious leaders such as Saul has just been amped up. Like, for example, like Nebuchadnezzar turning the furnace up, right? In the book of Daniel. The church in Jerusalem is being scattered due to persecution. And the, again, sorry to use another Greek word, but the Greek word for scatter here, right, is the idea of spreading seed out. It seems like a pretty dire situation for them. But like seed, that brings forth crops which feeds and sustains and nourishes the body. I think we're going to see that God is using this terrible persecution to spread that which ultimately feeds and nourishes the soul. What man meant for evil, I think God's going to work for good. They're not all scattered, though. 
So it says, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then also devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. There's a bit of a debate about who these devout men are that stayed in and buried Stephen. Perhaps they were Christians who had not yet been driven out of Jerusalem. Or perhaps they were pious Jews who saw something in uh, the martyrdom which made them esteem him worthy of a decent burial. Either way, I want you to notice a contrast here. A contrast between the devout men and Saul. Both are devoted to something, right? These devout men are committed to, despite the risk, right? Committed to honouring and mourning their friend who gave their life for Christ. And Saul... He's devoted to ravaging and stopping the church by doing a maybe a different form of door knocking than what we're used to, right? Going around from house to house. And we won't get into it too much here because we're going to learn a lot more about Saul as, as we go along, who, who will become uh, Paul. But we're going to see his, his passion and his devotion and the direction of that change. And when I was reading this, I thought... What am I devoted to? What are you devoted to? What takes all your time, efforts, attention, affection? What guides the direction of your life? Can I say that if it's anything other than Christ, your devotion, my devotion, is going to be misdirected? So what does devotion to to Christ look like? What does devotion to him look like? The way we spend our time and our money is guided by how this will honour God. The way we raise our kids will be guided by the word of God and honouring God. The way we work will not be my success at the cost of all others, but guided by honouring God and respecting our colleagues as made in the image of God. Meaning I'm not going to trample on others to get where I want. So how are you going? How am I going with my devotion? When we get to verse 4, it says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You don't need to put up your hands and and share your story, but what is is your response? What happens when, you know, something doesn't go right in your life, when you're challenged, when difficulties come your way? How do you respond? What do we see happen here with this scattering? We see that they're about preaching the word of God. They could have hidden and remained fearful that the persecution would just follow them when they went wherever else they were. But they didn't. They continued to preach the word of God. It's impressive. I was challenged when I, when I read this as well, because I, I can recall times in, in my life where there's been hostility towards the gospel. And instead of preaching the word, I've retreated or, or remained silent and said nothing. Does this mean that God needs me to, to defend him? No, he doesn't. But does God call us to be ambassadors of the saving message of salvation? Yeah, it does. When faced with opposition to Christ, how do we respond? Retreat or resilience? As believers, may you and I be found not to retreat, but to be resilient, proclaiming the truth of God, proclaiming his word, that leads to joy. Proclamation that leads to joy. This is our next point. We're going to hear more about Philip as we go along, but 
in case you forgot about him by way of introduction, it is mostly agreed upon that he is different to the Philip uh, with the disciple, the same name, right? We hear about uh, Philip first in Acts 6.5. His chosen is one of the seven to wait tables, or in other words, to serve those with the physical needs, right? When there was that discrepancy, they chose seven, is that? To, to look after that, and so the others could focus on teaching and spreading and running the church. Later in Acts uh, 21.8, this same Philip is, you know, he's distinguished, right? And he's given this title, Philip the Evangelist. So Philip started in service of the church by meeting just material needs, right? Serving, just basically, but feeding, by feeding and looking after people. But now, when he's forced to flee Jerusalem and he's landed in Samaria, what does he start doing straight away? Proclaiming to them the Christ. Philip didn't say, well, my role is just to hand out food and make sure people are equally cared for. No, he saw the need in a new area and began to share with them the Christ. What was the response of the crowd there? They paid attention as Philip first proclaimed Christ to them. And then this was backed up by the signs of casting out demons and healing people. And before we go further as well, consider Samaria, right? Who was from Samaria? Samaritans. Who didn't the Jews like? The Samaritans. Who does Philip preach to? The Samaritans. David Guzik, in his commentary, he says this about Samaria. The city of Samaria, about 700 years, 750 years before this, the Assyrians conquered this area of northern Israel and deported all the wealthy and middle-class Jews from the area. Then they moved in a pagan population from afar. These pagans intermarried with the lowest classes of remaining Jews in northern Israel, and from these people came the Samaritans. Generally speaking, the Jews of that day hated the Samaritans. They considered them compromising half-breeds who corrupted the worship of the true God. There was a deep-seated prejudice, amounting almost to hatred, standing between the Jews and the Samaritans. James and John also, uh, the disciples, once thought that the Samaritans were only good for being burned by God's judgment, right? You can read that in Luke 9. The Jewish leaders of this day had confirmed their rejection of Jesus the Christ in the killing of Stephen. And God has used this to spread the gospel, not just um, to the Jew, but to those whom the Jews despised. And he was doing this with a Jew. You and I, we live in a world that seems to champion, right? At least verbally, tolerance and diversity. Yeah, we're divided as ever. What Philip held in his heart and his hands was not anger and hatred towards his people of Samaria. What Philip held was a message of healing and reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, whom through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we put ourselves aside, when the devotion of our attention, as we discussed earlier, is directed to Christ, and we are about his mission of reconciliation, friends, people are going to pay attention. What was the result of the preaching and miracles? Tells us in verse 8, there was much joy in that city. Much joy. What a shock it was to the conservative middle-class congregation when the hippies arrived. Parents deeply concerned about the hippie influence on their children and the criticism of their neighbours and other churches in the area. But the hippies' passion for Jesus and their love for the neighbours broke through. The church kept growing out of its buildings till the property on Sunflower and Fairview in Santa Ana was purchased and a circus tent erected that expanded to fit the 2,000-plus people in attendance. The ministry rapidly grows, and Chuck finds himself carrying out mass baptisms, sometimes 500 at a time. It's a cool picture there. That's a snippet of the growth of Calvary Chapel in the 60s and 70s there in the States. When the gospel is proclaimed, and by the work of the Spirit, people pay attention. Barriers, they're torn down. Bridges are crossed Reconciliation is brought and there is joy. Is everything fine and, and dandy and, and happy though? Not always. What's Saul doing? He's still wreaking havoc on the church. And we're about to encounter another tricky situation that goes by the name of Simon. But there's joy. What determines your joy? Circumstance? Level of comfort? Maybe? That might determine your level of happiness at the time. But joy is found in knowing and accepting Christ. So we've seen a turning point in the persecution, resulting in the scattering of the church. We have seen a turning point in the lives of the Samaritans as a result of this scattering, starting to fulfill Acts 1.8. Next, we're going to see a turning point in the life of a man named Simon. Power to believe. So as we get into this, this section, it can be a bit tricky, right? There's questions on sorcery, the spirit, salvation. But I think by God's grace, there's significant practical insight for us even today. We just read in verse 6 that Philip is in Samaria. And he is preaching Christ and performing miracles. And the people, remember, paid attention. But I think Luke now, as he as he writes Acts, he sets up a bit of a contrast for us between Philip and Simon. So Philip, he's a foreigner to Samaria. He proclaimed Christ. The people paid attention to what he said. The power of Christ was displayed through Philip. Great joy was brought and the people believed and were baptised. Then with Simon, he was more of a local he proclaimed himself, 
the people paid attention to his magic or sorcery, the power of the enemy or Satan was displayed through Simon. Amazement was given, but also Simon believed and was baptized as well. So you see, there's a bit of a, a, bit of a contrast here between these two gentlemen. Let's look at this contrast. So first, local foreigner. Philip had fled Jerusalem, and Simon was somewhat a, a local. Verse 11 tells us that for a long time, Simon had amazed them. Do I need to change microphones? This is... There we go. We'll see how that goes. Get it out of my pocket. Sorry. Uh, So Philip had fled Jerusalem, and Simon was, yeah, again, somewhat of a local. And he was there for for quite a while doing this, this magic or this sorcery that had amazed them. Galatians 3.28 tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Philip has been transformed, right, so that he can reach a people he previously despised. Simon was known by the people, but he wanted to deceive them with his sorcery. Proclamation versus Christ, proclaiming Christ versus proclaiming self. Philip came and started to proclaim Christ, where Simon, he had stuck around because he was proclaiming himself as someone great. Remember, people were attributing the power of God to Simon. So Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Philip carried the light to be shared, so God would have the glory, and Simon wanted the glory and accepted the praise from the people. When Philip spoke to the people, they paid attention to the words that pointed to Christ. And on the other hand, the people paid attention to Simon because he amazed them with his magic. In John 6, 68 through 69, it says, in that section, Jesus had challenged the people following him about their belief. And many people ended up leaving. I'm not sure if you remember that section. Jesus then asked his 12 disciples if they will also leave. Which Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So again, Philip performed miracles and Simon performed acts of magic that amazed people. But neither of these, either the acts of Philip or the acts of Simon, saved people, right? It is the words that carried the eternal message. The power on display, when Philip performed miracles, it was God's power on display, not his. And when Simon performed magic, the people said that Simon himself was the power of God. In Luke 11, after Jesus had addressed the the religious leaders about the power by which he casts out demons, he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Simon's power was not of God, so it was the enemy's power. 
And Simon accepted the attribution of power as well. Like Adam and Eve gave into temptation when presented with a chance to be like God, so it is here. Simon is accepting this power. The same sin rears its head since the start. Joy and amazement. Here's another contrast. The news that Philip spoke brought great joy, and what Simon offered brought superficial amazement. People had believed and they begged him to stay. But Jesus could not in John 4. Do you remember Jesus was in Samaria before? And speaking to the woman at the well? They had the gospel there previously. Simon was performing miracles that had diverted the Samaritans' attention since then. This same message to believe in Jesus has returned. Has returned. And it brings them great joy. So what's the end result? The end result is that the good news has the power to transform lives. And what Simon offered only distracted the people from the truth. It doesn't stop at joy for the Samaritans, right? Because they believe publicly. And they display their belief by being baptized. And where does it leave us? As Christians, we pass through this world as foreigners. And we are tasked with proclaiming Christ to those around us without what any prejudice, directing their attention, the people's attention to Christ because it is God's power on display and the message of Christ by the work of the Spirit that brings true joy, not just amazement. And this joy, it transforms people, bringing them into relationship with God. Next, we've got this filling of the Spirit. And we read in in verse 13 that Simon believed, was baptized, and continued with Philip. And he also seemed very captivated by the miracles as well, right? So Simon at this point has gone from performing magic to going on a missionary trip to spread, spread the good news of Jesus. What a turnaround it seems to have happened for this guy. And we'll deal with Simon shortly, but I want to first talk about Peter and John coming to the new believers in Samaria. This section, it's, it's raised many questions for people. Why did Peter and John come and lay hands on the people and then they received the Holy Spirit? Why did it need to be Peter and John? Why hadn't they received the Holy Spirit already? Is this speaking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at salvation or is this a filling slash baptism of the Spirit? So... I'm going to give you five solutions, and then I'm going to tell you where I land. And it's a bit of a combo deal of these five solutions. So, number one, some say they were never truly born again, the Samaritans, under Philip's preaching. And then when Peter and John came, they they really trusted in Jesus and then received the Holy Spirit. Option one. Two, some say they were truly born again. Then in a subsequent experience, they received the Holy Spirit in a pattern that believers should follow today. Three, some say that they were converted in response to Philip's preaching, yet God, in a unique move, withheld the gift of the Holy Spirit until Peter and John could bestow it on them. God's purpose in this was to ensure continuity between the church in Jerusalem and the new church in Samaria, guarding against division. That's number three. Number four, 
Some say they were really born again and did really receive the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion, but were given special gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit at the laying hands of Peter and John. And lastly, the falling of the Spirit seems to have been more than a regular bestowal of the Holy Spirit at salvation. This is a filling of the Holy Spirit, again, that we should desire and seek today. So we'll get to where I've landed and as a combination. But I think we need to consider the context here first. Remember in verse 1, the apostles had stayed in Jerusalem while the other believers scattered. Then we followed Philip to Samaria. The people are believing and being baptised, but there's no mention of the Holy Spirit yet. And we noted that in chapter 7 and the start of this chapter, it's a pivotal point for the church, right? So something significant is, is happening here at this point. Persecution is no longer just addressing the Christians and telling them off as they speak about Jesus, but Stephen has been killed and Saul is actively seeking Christians out to lock them away. So there's something significant happening as far as persecution of the church as well. Not only that, but the church is spreading and moving out to fulfill Acts 1.8. Again, another significant matter is happening. Also remember Peter and John are the key representatives of the church that started in Jerusalem and are, so to speak, capital A apostles. Peter and John also historically uh, did not like the Samaritans and are now, we're going to see that they're eager to come and be a part of what God is doing in Samaria. And regarding the work of the Spirit, we have seen previously in Acts the pattern is that the Spirit indwells the believer at the time of salvation but also comes upon people to fill them for certain purposes and or circumstances to ultimately be a witness. So that's the context. So I believe that this situation here is that God is making a special move of the Spirit. I believe that the believers here in Samaria are indwelt by the Spirit when they believed and were baptised. However, they have not yet experienced a filling or as the passage says the spirit had not yet fallen on them when the spirit came to the jews in chapter 2 the spirit fell on them in a unique way here when the next step of acts 1 8 is being fulfilled the spirit falls on them also in a unique way by bringing peter and john and then we're going to see again in chapter 10 when the spirit falls on the gentiles this will happen in a unique way as well it's not normal the circumstances, right, in 2, 8, and 10 might be unique and different, those circumstances. But I think the purpose here in each situation is the same. And the purpose is unity. In Acts 2, with the Jews, each person was able to hear the gospel in their own language, bringing unity to the church in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, the Spirit brought unity between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Samaria. Peter and John came, right, and pray for them that they may experience the filling of the Spirit, showing they welcome the Samaritans as followers of Jesus and partakers in the gift of the Spirit. And then we're going to see in chapter 10, unity is brought between the Jew and the Gentile church, right? And that's preceded by Peter's uh, vision. But when we get to chapter 10, we'll talk about that a bit more. The other two circumstances in chapter 2 and in chapter 10 mention what outward signs were, were performed when the falling of the Spirit came. 
but not so much here in chapter 8. But I think it must have been outwardly visible, right? And I think that's evident to Simon's response, right? Because Simon, he asks for this same power. So he's seen something happen when Peter and John lay their hands on him. If Peter and John had just prayed for these people and there was no evidence that anything had changed or, you know, it's just quiet or nothing happened, right? I don't think he would have asked to receive this power. That might have been a lot of, of information, but to sort of summarize it, the falling of the Spirit seems to have been more than the regular bestowal of the Spirit at salvation, as evidenced by Simon's response and the fact that this is a pivotal point for the spread of the gospel. This is a filling of the Spirit we should always desire and seek. God's purpose in delaying the filling of the Spirit was to ensure continuity between the church in Jerusalem and the new church in Samaria, guarding against division. Happy to chat about that a bit more after as well, if you like. But Simon is a fascinating character, right? And, and I, and I want to get into him here. He started off, like I mentioned earlier, performing magic, and then he accepted... Uh, you know, accepting this proclamation from the people as him having the, the power of God that is called great. And the people are amazed, right? And he's gathering a bit of a following. He's somewhat famous, so to speak. It's a bit of a gnarly picture, but um, someone's depiction. Um, then he hears Philip's, uh, Philip preach. He believes in Jesus, gets baptized, and then goes on a missionary journey with Philip. There's a bit to be said about Simon in, in church history. Some of it's uh, a bit fuzzy or not 100% confirmed, but some of the things, um, but he does appear, right? So some of the things that are said is that he was a large uh, proponent of the, the Gnostic heresy in the early church. Some say he continued to believe that he had special power from God and continued essentially uh, down the track of sorcery and magic after this point. And still other Christian documents of the third century state that Simon, uh, in the role of false messiah, had further confrontations with Peter at Rome. According to legend on challenging the apostles before the emperor Nero in 54 and 68, Simon fell to his destruction from atop the Roman forum in an attempt to demonstrate his occult ability to fly. Right? So, not 100% confirmed, but this may have been where our friend Simon ended up. Regardless of all this, I think what is clear from this passage is that there is a conflict in power happening here. There is spiritual warfare happening here. Matthew 12, and we read the last bit of this earlier, but Matthew 12, 22 through 30 says, then demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against himself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against himself, itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons, that being Jesus, by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. 
But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there's two powers in the world, and they're displayed here, right? One is from the devil or Satan, and one is from God. This power of the devil leads people away from God. It glorifies self, it deceives, and it ultimately destroys. The power from God, this power leads people to God, glorifies and brings honor to God, brings knowledge and light, and it ultimately it gives life. I think it is an important point here that Simon is performing magic, and Philip was, by the power of the Spirit, not only healing people, but was also casting out demons. It brings a contrast. Both these men, Simon and Philip, are controlled by a power. One power from Satan and one power from God. Simon showed that he was working with the enemy and Philip showed that the kingdom of God had come to the people of Samaria. You and I, we can't be a part of two kingdoms. You are either for God or you are against him. There's no fence sitting. God wants you, mind, body, heart, soul. He wants you to experience what it is to walk with him and follow him. He wants you to experience the same joy that the Samaritans felt when they heard the good news of Jesus. May we be people that are submitted to God's power and his authority. But Simon, he seems to have a, a turning point, right? Sorcerer to servant, magician to missionary. Then he sees that by the laying on of hands from Peter and John, people receive the Spirit. And he wants it. He wants that power. Did you notice that Philip, he doesn't seek the power? Philip could have complained that, well, this is my ministry. I've been here. I've been baptizing and preaching people. You've seen the response? There's praise and affirmation from, from those around, the, around them, both Simon and, and Philip. And I think this praise and, and affirmation has a potential to distort, right? Distort this power, you know, this sense of power. Simon's experience of it was for him to desire more of this power. The warning for us here is to be aware of the draw of power. And I'm sure it wouldn't take you long to think off the top of your head, uh, whether in the church or outside of the church, of someone who's desired power, and that's led them to do all sorts of things to get that power. There's also a term called simony. I don't know if you've heard of that before, and it comes from this instance here. And it's a buying, essentially, of a position in the church. You use your money, you use your power, you use your influence to get a position in the church. The draw to power might be great, but, spoiler alert, God's power wins every time. Just in this chapter, we saw that Simon could 
amaze and fool people, but the gospel message brought through Philip healed people, freed them from demonic power, and ultimately, what did it do? It saved them from sin and death. And then Peter responds to Simon's question of, of buying the Holy Spirit or the power of giving people the Holy Spirit. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the goal of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Is this too harsh from Peter? The people of, of Samaria are new believers, right? As is Simon. But Simon's putting a stumbling block in front of them. And Peter needs to remove this immediately, and he addresses it. And I think there's a couple of things that Peter wants to make very clear when he responds to Simon. One, that salvation and the gift of the Spirit is a free gift. It cannot be bought. And the thought that the gift of God can be bought has nothing to do with the ministry of the apostles or Philip. Simon, and thirdly, Simon needs to repent because his heart is not right before God. You cannot buy, bribe, earn, trick, slip, hop, skip, or jump your way into salvation. It's a truly free gift from God. Simon's heart, it was still focused on the power he could have. And when he saw that God used Peter and John, and says that he was bitter. What about you and me? Have you ever looked at someone else's gifts or the way God is using someone else and become envious or bitter? If you find yourself thinking that way, maybe consider Philip. Remember in chapter 6, we read that he was one of the men that was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And yet he humbly served the church. And now God is using him to fulfill the spreading of the gospel, right? His heart, Philip's heart, was right before God. Is your heart right before God? The offense here, it's not towards Peter and John or Philip. It's towards God. Do we know whether Simon got his heart right before God? I don't know 100%. But his response, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What did Peter ask him? Peter asked him to pray to the Lord for forgiveness. Simon himself needed to approach the Lord, not Peter, for forgiveness. Simon still had this misconception of power. power sorry. Peter does not have the power to make Simon's heart right before the Lord. Nobody in this room has the power to make your heart or my heart right before the Lord. Friends, if you're walking in sin today, or if you're yet to even give your heart to the Lord, pray to the Lord and he will forgive you. There's a hymn, Is thy heart right with God? Have thy affections been nailed to the cross? Is thy heart right with God? Dost thou count all things for Jesus but loss? Is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart right with God, washed in crimson flood? 
cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. Hast thou dominion or self and or sin? Is thy heart right with God? Over all, out, over all evil without and within, is thy heart right with God? Is there no more condemnation for sin? Is thy heart right with God? Does Jesus rule in the temple within? Is thy heart right with God? Are all thy powers under Jesus' control? Is thy heart right with God? Does he each moment abide in thy soul? Is thy heart right with God? Art thou now walking in heaven's pure light? Is thy heart right with God? Is thy soul wearing a garment of white? Is thy heart right with God? The enemy tried to stop the spread of the gospel, but persecution led to the spreading of God's people. The people of God were scattered, but this led to further proclamation of the gospel, resulting in great joy. The people of Samaria misplaced their pronouncement of power on Simon, but God showed the true power of salvation and brought the power of the Spirit for the purpose of unity in a group of people once divided. All of this is to the end goal of spreading the good news of Christ to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray now that as we sit, Lord, may our hearts be right before you. God, if there is any sin, anything getting in the way of our walk, our relationship with you, God, reveal that to us that we may be right with you. God, may me, may, Lord, may we be people that just serve you and honour you in a way that draws attention to you. Lord, we want people to pay attention to you because you alone, Lord, have the words of eternal life. God, you're good. May you go before us. Watch us and keep us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.